to read a couple verses to begin with. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7. He did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. In Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. I would like to look this afternoon with these thoughts in mind, the thought of as we sang, Lord, I was drawn us after thee, now let us run and never tire. And I wonder if the uh, hymn writer originally wrote it in the first person, Lord, or draw me, how was it worded there? Uh, draw me after Thee. Draw me, Savior, after Thee. That is the Song of Solomon who read, Draw me, we will run after Thee. That the path of Christianity is for us each one individually. That we each individually must be drawn by the Lord Himself. It's not movement by group or by company, but it's by individual. And yet, the bride there has that confidence if she was drawn, there would be others that would run with her. We will run after thee. And so how little perhaps we recognize the immense blessing that one person can be that is devoted to the Lord Jesus, that with that one with singleness of heart would follow after the blessed Lord that there will be others that are influenced and affected in a very positive way to run with them after the Lord Jesus. But we read in Galatians chapter 5, it really is a, it's a heart-wrenching word that Paul has to write to the Galatians. He said, ye did run well. And they did. They started out well. They began in the Spirit. And so great was their affection for Paul, they would have plucked their eyes out and given them to him. Such was their devotedness to the servant of the Lord. And yet, they'd gotten off track. They'd missed the path. They no longer were running in solitary, of, uh, in, in, in uh, singleness of heart after the Lord Jesus. They had been persuaded but not been persuaded by the Lord Jesus. There had been some persuasion that had come in, but Paul could say, it's not of Him that calls you. You've been persuaded, all right, but not in the good way. And he says, you did run well. Who did hinder you? What came in? There was a day when you were going on brightly. There was a day you were coming on devotedly. But not anymore. Not anymore. And oh, how Paul sought to arouse them from this numbness that had set in, this leaven that had leavened that, those, that region in the, of those assemblies in, in Galatia. And he sought to recover them to the Lord. 
Well, we also had that thought about running in Hebrews chapter 12. And we're very familiar, are we not, with the 11th chapter where we have these great examples, these testimonies, these witnesses, if you will, of faith. And those that walk in the path of faith. And we find in that 11th chapter, and we could go to others that are perhaps only alluded to in the 11th chapter, that are not developed. There were those that started very well, but they did not end up well. And then there's those like Jacob, who had his struggles at the beginning. He did not start well, but he ended well. But when we come to the 12th chapter, the writer brings account of this great cloud of witnesses. And it's not the thought of a witness as if, if someone's on trial and, and, and there's a witness that comes up and, and gives testimony. But their, their, uh, their life is the thought of rendering a testimony to the pathway of faith that we, can, that we can learn from them in this way. But as we come and uh, the end of the verse is, let us run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us. Because... Hebrews is one of the wilderness epistles where the people of God are viewed as being in the land. And it says there remains a rest for the people of God. At the end of the pathway, there's a rest. Oh, there's rest for conscience now, but not rest from labor. That awaits the coming days. So he says now is the time to run and to run with endurance, to plow on despite obstacles and setbacks in the heat of the wilderness journey. And then he brings out what is the key for us to go on. He says, looking unto the great cloud of witnesses? No. no. Looking unto Jesus. That is the cloud of witnesses in chapter 11. There's many examples and testimonies of faith that we can be encouraged, that we can draw from their examples and draw from some of the setbacks and challenges and hurdles they had to overcome. We can draw from that and learn from that. But they're not to be our object. When it says looking unto Jesus, the force of that expression, as I understand it, is to take your eyes off from all others and fix them on Jesus. It's not the thought of turn away your eyes from beholding vanity. Don't be looking at that. You shouldn't be looking at that. That's not the thought. There are those that we would look at and we would be the gainers if we would consider their testimony of faith. He says, now you take your eyes off from all of them. Because there's only one for the object, for your faith, one object for faith. And that's what we have in verse 2. Jesus, the author and finisher, it should be of faith. That is the pathway of faith. Because he's the author and the finisher. He began well and he ended well. Unlike those in Hebrews 11 and with all others, the Lord Jesus ran the pathway in perfection. And now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God as the object of his people's faith and all the affliction and persecution they were going through. They look up him there and consider him. He's one that had gone before that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And the writer says, ye have not yet resisted unto blood. He did. And he's now on high as the object of faith. And so this would be what would sustain us that we would run, that we would run with endurance, that we would run well, and we would not be hindered. Well, there's some things that have weighed upon me in many months, and I remember a conversation just a little over a year ago. 
Your brother was saying, says he's filled with dread to see that men of God that have missed the pathway. What hope is there for the rest of us? And uh, I've been considering something along this line. I'd like to look. Well, I don't know how much time we'll have, but I would like to look at seven kings of Judah that ran well, but were hindered. They went on very nicely, and and even the end, they had a nice testimony. But somewhere along the line, they got tripped up. And what I'd like to do, with the Lord's help this afternoon, is to notice perhaps one thing in each of those seven kings that would be very positive, that we could learn from, that the youngest, and maybe I should say that especially the young, could gain from. And then perhaps a word of warning to those that are older. Because, let's face it, when you've lived most of your life, instruction for the pathway may not have the same bearing as when your life lies before you. Because the decisions of life have been made, our history has been run. And yet there are warnings. So let's turn back to Second uh, Chronicles. <clears throat> and of necessity, we'll need to be brief in different passages. But turn first to the 12th chapter. And this is not one of the kings that ran well. This king never ran well. But I would like to notice this verse and another before we get into these seven kings. Second Chronicles 12 and verse... 14, in regard to Rehoboam, it says, He did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. And I'd like to contrast that verse with a verse in the 27th chapter. 2 Chronicles chapter 27 and verse 6. So Jotham became mighty because... He prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Rehoboam really was a king that nothing good is said about him. I think we can find some positive things, but as far as you would know, he was an unbelieving king of Judah. It was in his day that the great divide between the ten tribes and the two tribes occurred. And it really clarifies why he did evil. Because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. It doesn't say because he was just a wayward boy from his mother's womb. The reason he did evil is clearly stated because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. There was not diligence with Rehoboam to seek the Lord, to seek Him in prayer and to seek Him in the Word. And the result was he did evil. It didn't say he intended to do evil. He just didn't prepare his heart to seek the Lord and the result was he did evil. Now, the contrast to that is Jotham. He became mighty. Why? Because he did prepare his ways before the Lord is God. Doesn't it say in Proverbs to commit thy works to the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established? If we commit our work to the Lord and this is the direction we're going, the Lord will guide our thoughts. And so, with Rehoboam... Nothing good is said about him because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. And Jotham, nothing bad is said about him because he did prepare his ways before the Lord. 
<clears throat> well, let's go to chapter 14. Rehoboam had a son, Abijah, and Abijah had a son named Asa. And this is brought to mind uh, just last night. Debbie was over at the house and we uh, enjoyed this uh, the 15th chapter of this book so much. We actually went on and read the 16th chapter. You know, I especially for you that are younger, if you're going to read you know, some portions of Scripture, these books of Kings and Chronicles are most interesting and they have such instructive lessons for us. They're very important for us. But we're going to uh, notice Asa here in chapter 14. So Abijah slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son reigned in his stead. In his days the land was quiet ten years. And Asa did that which is good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places and break down the images and cut down the groves and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. And he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images and the kingdom was And he built fenced cities in Judah for the land had rest. And he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said unto Judah, Let us build these cities and make about them walls and towers, gates and bars, while the land is yet before us. Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought Him, and He has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. That's what we sang in the hymn, isn't it? And um, close us in on every side. Well, He had rest on every side. But the point I want to bring out here with Asa Yet ten years of quiet. Say nothing's happening. We need to go down to the chariot races or something to fill up time. This is a it's a boring ten years. The point I'd like to make here is God would give to us, especially those of you that are younger, He's given you an allotment of time. It may be very brief, probably not ten years. Pardon the personal reference, but it seemed after my grandpa. Smith's death, I was 18 years of age. It was really then that the Lord began to ratchet up the pressure on me as far as being serious about getting into the Word of God. And I got married at 23. Basically, five years to be serious about divine things. You know, the world has the expression, make hay while the sun shines. You know, I'm going to have lots of time your whole life to just browse through the Word at your leisure. Asa had ten years and he applied himself with diligence in that ten-year period to build these cities, the gates, the bars, and oh, how he prepared against a day of test that was coming. The Lord Jesus could say, the night is coming. The night cometh when no man can work. He would work the works of Him that sent Him while it was day. And there's a time coming when it's, it's too late. You've, used, you've, you've spent your best years. You can't bring them back. How are we going to use them? Well, Asa, the example I believe we gained from here, especially for you, the younger ones, he was young and he had ten years and he used them in a very constructive way that was going to be for the blessing of the people of God. Now, in this uh, 14th chapter, there's that million-man army that comes against him. Not 200 or 400,000 that's called a million, but a million-man army that comes against him. The Lord delivers him. And he goes on fine. For 35 years, he reigns. 
Boy, what a track record he's got going. 35 years of a fine kingdom, godly king, a man that does what's right. But now the 36th year comes in chapter 16. In the 36th and 30th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, that dwelt at Damascus, saying, There is a league between me and thee as there was between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent thee silver and gold. Go break thy league of Basha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. I don't have time to read it all. He forms this false association. And at verse 7, And at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and hast not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. Now, here's a verse we sometimes quote as for our encouragement in the prayer meeting. But notice how it's quoted to Asa. Verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. And we might add, in your heart has not been perfect toward Him, Asa. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. We'll stop right there. I remember this brother saying this. He was filled with dread. And it just struck me at that time that each of these seven kings, and again, we may not get to all of them, but each of them had a word of warning. God has just not let His servants go without speaking to them, without appealing to them. And here's the first one. Asa had gotten sideways. He'd gotten off the path. And now Hanani comes and speaks very directly to his conscience as a prophet would and did. Verse 10, Then Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Verse 12, And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. How sad. 35 years under his belt. Strong resume. Strong track record. But, instead of looking to the Lord as he once did when there was a million men coming against him, now he looks to the king of Assyria. King of Syria. He, he looks for this alliance to protect him against the, against the ten tribes, against Basham. And when the prophet speaks very directly to him, what is Ace's response? He gets angry. Not only angry, he was livid. He was wroth. He was in a rage. This man was beside himself that Hanani dared to speak to him, the king of Judah, in this way. What a solemn thing for us when we come to the point where we are beyond receiving correction. Brother Clarence Lundin used to often remind us that reproofs of correction are the ways of life. It's the way of life. Correction. In this man, Asa couldn't take it. Not after the 35 years that he had. He didn't need some upstart prophet wagging the finger at him. Well, what happens? The Lord is patient with His servants. He sends this disease in His feet. 
Does he now turn to the Lord in repentance? No. No. So much had transpired in those few short years, he doesn't seek to the Lord. Even though the Lord spoke to him so directly, the disease in his feet, it speaks about a, a diseased walk. But he doesn't turn to the Lord. He looks to the physicians and he fails. Well, Asa, he can, we can learn from him how he began. He used that ten years of quiet in a way that would be for the blessing and protection of the people of God. And may we each, in our measure, use whatever time period that ten year period may be for the Lord. And then, oh, if the Lord would correct us. And maybe we don't like the way Hanani the seer comes across and reproaches us. Let's not react as Asa did who became in a rage because he was corrected. Well, he had a son, chapter 17. Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his stead and strengthened himself against Israel. And he placed forces in all the fenced cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa his father had taken. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father Asa. No, in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam but sought to the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. Verse 7, Also in the third year of his reign he sent to the princes, even to Ben-Hael and to Obadiah and to Zechariah, and to Nethaniel and to Micaiah to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them he sent Levites, even Shemaiah and Nethaniah and Zebediah and Asahel and uh, Shemaramoth and Jehonathan and Adonijah and Tobijah and Tob Adonijah, Levites. And with them, Elisham and Jehoram, priests. And they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them and went about throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands who were round about Judah so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat couple things here about Jehoshaphat. We see with him a real desire that all the tribes of Israel would, um, or at least all of, of, of Judah, would hear, um, would hear the Word of God. The cities of Judah. That's the expression I was looking for. All the cities of Judah. Because the ten tribes are off uh, in, in rebellion. But in every city, he desired that the Word of God would be taught. I like to think of that as the answer to local assemblies where the truth of God is carried on. I remember Brother making the statement that God has been pleased to preserve the truth in local assemblies. That's how the truth is carried on. It's not my me taking a position of independence saying I'm going to pass on the truth of the assembly in independence from the assembly. It's taught in the local assembly in the context of a locality. And this is what Jehoshaphat, he wanted the word to be taught in all the cities of Judah. And the result was there was such blessing. He was a godly, godly king. And furthermore, it says he walked in the first ways of David his father. That is, he goes back to the beginning. Not in the failures and the shortcomings of David, but in the first ways. That which he did which was right before the Lord. It tells us in 2 Timothy 2, when Paul writes to Timothy of those things that he'd heard among many witnesses, he said, The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And that's what we see in Jehoshaphat. 
He walked in the first ways of David his father. That was generations before. Well, what, six maybe? Can we still go on in the truth that God has recovered perhaps six generations or so ago? Jehoshaphat did. That's the path for us. Not something new and novel. Not some twist for the 21st century. It's the same that's been committed to faithful men. But let's go to chapter 18. Now, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance and joined affinity with Ahab. What that means, he was united through a marital link. This is staggering and hard to conceive what occurred. That Jehoshaphat, godly King Jehoshaphat, that saw to it that the Word of God was taught in all the cities of Judah, his son, Jehoram, marries the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, the most wicked couple recorded in Scripture. And that's who the godliest king, one of the godliest kings of Israel, gave his son to be married to. You shake your head and say, this is numbing. How, Jehoshaphat, could you do that? How would you not warn and plead with your son not to marry Athaliah of all people? And after certain years, he went down to Ahab, to Samaria. And Ahab killed sheep and oxen for him in abundance. And for the people that he had with him and persuaded him, here we go, this persuasion cometh not of him. And answered him, I am as thou art, and my people as thy people, and we will be with thee in the war. His father lined up with Syria to fight against Israel. Now Jehoshaphat is lining up with Israel to fight against Syria, I presume. And he said, this is a very solemn thing. He says, the king of Judah says to the king of Israel, I am as thou art. No difference. Is that right? It wasn't right at least two points. It wasn't true personally, and it was not true positionally. You could not find two men further apart personally than Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was one that was seeking the, the, uh, the people would be taught the Word of God and they would worship Jehovah. Ahab was a man urged on by his wife Jezebel that was an idolater and he was a wicked man. But more than that, Jehoshaphat, by God's grace, was at the divine center of the two tribes and Ahab was, in, was in, among the ten tribes. They weren't the same. And there is such a thing as false humility. We'll say, well, I'm not better than anybody. Point taken. But that's not the point. God in His grace put Jehoshaphat at Jerusalem, and that's where he was to stay. Not with the kings of Israel. He goes up. But he had taken up a false false principle. It wasn't true. He wasn't as Ahab was. Personally or positionally. Now drop down to verse 9. And the king of Israel, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, sat either of them on his throne clothed in their robes, and they sat in a void place at the entering in of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. If you would notice in the New Translation, when he sat in a void place, it means he sat in an open place. An open place. Where anything goes. We're not bound by principle. It's an open place. It's a place where the two tribes and the ten tribes, where Ahab and Jehoshaphat can come together on common ground and work together. 
for the good of all Israel, all 12 tribes, not just the two. You see what I'm driving at here? We find further that God had a faithful man there, Micaiah, in Israel. Ahab doesn't want to hear from me. He says, I've got 400 men to prophesy. Why do I need Micaiah, who's always throwing a monkey wrench into things? It always, you know, it's so negative. Joshua says, don't, don't let the king say so. Jehoshaphat knew better. Micaiah gave a prophetic word and he suffered for it where he was. He was faithful. There's so much. The whole study of Jehoshaphat is, a, is, a, is an hour to itself. But go down to chapter 19. Remember how Hanani corrected Asa and it wasn't received very well. Isn't it nice to see in chapter 19 that Hanani has a son that's continuing on in that same faithfulness? Verse 2. And Jehu, the son of Hanani the seer, that's not to be confused with Jehu, the king of Israel later on, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldst thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, and that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land, and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. And Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again through the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim, and so on. And he said, judges in the land, and, and he goes back to the very good work that he was engaged in with before. Now, what do we find with Jehoshaphat? Now, here's someone... Jehu the seer speaks to him in words that are every bit as strong as Hanani spoke to Asa. But we see with Jehoshaphat, he was a godly man. It doesn't say he went into a rage. It doesn't say he was very wroth and threw him into the prison house. He accepts it. He takes it. And then he goes on and continues on with the good work that he'd done before. But does he listen? Did he heed what Jehu brought before him. Let's fast forward to the end of chapter 20. Chapter 20 of Second Chronicles and verse 35. And after this, did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who did very wickedly. And he joined himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships. And Ezion gave her. Then Eleazar, the son of Dodava of Mereshah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because thou hast joined thyself with Ahaziah, the Lord hath broken thy works. And the ships were broken, and they were not able to go to Tarshish. At the beginning of Jehoshaphat's life, it says he walked in the first works, or the first ways of David his father. But that's not how he ended up. His works were broken. And Why? Because he was a man lacking in personal piety and godliness? No. The man, when it comes to himself personally, was really without reproach. He loved the Word of God. He loved Jehovah. He sought to encourage them. And he gave generously of himself. But the thing that dogged Jehoshaphat were these false alliances. He lines up with Ahab. He lines up with Ahaziah. Because he did not, if I can put it in today's terms, he didn't understand the principle of separation. All that mattered to him, it seems, was personal piety. 
And so he got into these associations and these links with those that were A, wicked persons, and B, that were in division. And the end of his life is shipwreck. Literally. But he was a godly king. And so there is more. Again, not like Asa. He did not get angry when he was corrected. But he didn't receive the correction. He didn't receive it. Well, we say, well, those things, you know, those things happen. But now the solemn thing is this. What was the fruit of him being soft on separation? His son married Athaliah, who was the most wicked woman in Israel or in Judah. Right behind Jezebel, her mother. As is the mother, so is the daughter. We find in the 21st chapter, we won't go into it, but we find how he slew all his brethren with the sword. We find Jehoram is singled out in this way. He is a king of Judah that is actually rebuked by a prophet, not to the two tribes, but this man Jehoram is actually rebuked by Elijah, a prophet of the ten tribes. Let me just put it in pardon the familiarity of, of tone. Such was his way. In essence, a picture of a believer in the camp coming in the camp coming and rebuking somebody gathered in the Lord's name because of their ways. He says, You're wrong, you're abominable in what you're doing. That's what happened. One from the ten tribes rebuked a king of the two tribes. You say, What confusion is this? But that's that's the condition that came out. Because of Jehoshaphat's principle or lack thereof on separation. That's where his son ended up. Well, then we find from Jehoram, he has a son Ahaziah. And um, chapter 22, let's drop down to verse 2. Forty and two years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, or the granddaughter, I suppose. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Oh, what an influence the mother has, but in this case, what an influence for bad. I think one of the most helpful words I heard as a young man is when a sister told me, when you're looking for a wife, look for the woman that you would want to raise your children. The man, uh, you know, Jehoram got was not someone that he really wanted to raise his children. But that's the woman that he got. And the result was he comes up with a man, Ahaziah, who walks wickedly because of the influence of his mother and grandmother. Well, Athaliah, we don't have time to comment on all the details here, but there's there's an overthrow and basically everyone gets cut down in death, and uh, Athaliah seizes the throne in verse verse, two, uh, verse 10. Jehu, that is the king of Israel, goes and kills not only the king uh, of Israel, but he kills the king of Judah as well. Because here again, Ahaziah was in a place he should have never been. He was with the king of Israel when he met his doom. Even though he tried to hide, Jehu found him out. And now verse 11 it's, it's getting muddy here. But Ahaziah, 
that is the grandson of Jehoshaphat, he's dead. Athaliah takes control, but Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain and put him and his nurse in a bedchamber. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she slew him not. And he was with them hid in the house of God six years. And Athaliah reigned over the land. You know, just as an aside, this has helped me sometimes. Things come in among the assemblies and say, this could never happen. There's no way God will stand with something like this. Well, if we raise the hypothetical, would God ever stand with a woman reigning over Judah? Never mind Israel now, the ten tribes that went off. Would God ever stand for a woman being in the place of king, queen in this case, for six years? He'd say no. Wouldn't, wouldn't happen. God wouldn't allow it. But he did. He did. Because of the low state that people came in. And yet, in the presence of all this confusion, there is this godly exercise where even those that are related here, they hide the last remaining son for the king. And that is Joash. They hide him six years. And how, how important to hide little ones from the distresses that come in among the saints of God to preserve and protect them. Well, the 23rd chapter brings out how Joash is brought to the brought to the throne and the people are behind him and Athaliah is screaming about treason or conspiracy. The fact of the matter is she was the one that was guilty of treason or conspiracy, not those that tried to protect the true king, Joash, but they, uh, she, is, uh, she is deposed. But now chapter 24, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name also was Zabiah Beersheba. And Joash did that which is right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took for him two wives, and he begat sons and daughters. And it came to pass after this that Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord. And he gathered together the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out unto the cities of Judah and gather of Israel, all Israel, money to repair the house of your God from year to year, and see that ye hasten the matter. Howbeit, the Levites hastened it not. So we find with Joash, and there was, there was progress with him, but we find with him that he sets about to repair the house of God. Even at a young age, and he was diligent that there would be energy towards rebuilding the house of God. We've had that in our readings in Haggai, haven't we? About go to the mountain and bring wood and, and build the house of the Lord where our interest should be taken up. We find in verse um, 8 that there is a chest. At the king's commandment, they made a chest and set it without at the gate of the house. Well, there was this uh, money that was brought in. Then in verse 11, uh, they emptied the chest and took it up and carried it to his place again. Thus did they day by day and gathered money in abundance. They were giving of their money and of their resources for the work of the Lord. The last conversation I remember having with my grandpa Smith was probably a, maybe a week or two before he passed away, very unexpectedly. I was on the phone and I was going to school and trying to learn how to do something, I guess, so I could make a living. And 
maybe he was concerned what the larger ambitions were, and he says, well, Billy, he said, what's the first mention of money in the Bible? I said, Grandpa, I don't, I don't know. I thought, I said, I don't know. He said, well, Abraham used money to buy a grave for his wife. He says, that's what money will get you down here is a grave. The Lord has other things that He would like to direct our money towards. Well, that's a word for us, isn't it? Each to make to ourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, to use it for the work of the Lord. Well, that's what Joash did. He did this in a very fine way. Well, his uncle Jehoiada, who was the priest, provided godly influence towards him and helped him along. But there's a time in all of our lives that Jehoiada the priest is going to die. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a godly older brother or sister that's had remarkable influence on it. And in verse 15 it says, But Jehoiada waxed old and was full of days, and he died. And 130 years old was when he died. That's quite a stretch of years, even in those days. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and toward his house. What a remarkable man of God Jehoiada the priest was who spared, he and his wife had spared Joash's life. What an influence of good he was and how he encouraged Joash to promote the interests of the house of God. But here comes the testing time. Jehoiada is no longer there. And when Paul wrote the Philippians, he could say, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says to the Philippians, I'm not going to be there with you anymore. You're going to have to work it out for yourself. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for fear that you'll go astray, that the assembly will be thrust into confusion. Well, no sooner, no, no, no sooner do they bury Jehoiada, verse 17, after the death of Jehoiada, came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king, and the king hearkened unto them. Verse 20, The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, I transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper. Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king and the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, that is, when uh, Zechariah died, he said, The Lord look upon it and require it. In that tragic, right after the death of Jehoiada, this man takes the wrong course. And what was it? It was flattery. And he that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. And Joash, who had gone so well and had given his energies and his money, his resources for the house of God, gets wrong companionships, associations that flatter him. And then God once again, as there was Hanani, as there was Jehu, now there's Zechariah that speaks to Joash very faithfully, his cousin. And for all intents and purposes, he was probably raised with him. He'd be basically like a brother. Speaks to him. Boy, nothing like when a brother corrects you. And what does he do? They stone him with stones. And who initiated that idea? At the commandment of the king. It was Joash 
godly King Joash, that gave and invested so much of his own resources for the house of God that said, stone that man. Because he did not like the prophetic word that reproached him that says, you've forsaken the Lord. Well, Solomon to Joash. Verse 25, And when they departed from him, for they left him in great diseases. His own servants conspired against him for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada, the priest, and slew him on his bed, and he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they buried him not in the sepulchres of the kings. So just as this man turned on his own cousin, his own servants turned on him. There is a solemn irony to the government of God. Joash, who started so well, is cut down by his own servants. Chapter 25, Amaziah was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jehoiadan of Jerusalem, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. Now it came to pass when the kingdom was established to him that he slew his servants that had killed the king his father, but he slew not their children, but did as it is written in the law of the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not die for the children, neither shall the children die for the fathers, but every man shall die for his own sin. What I find very commendable about Amaziah is restraint. Here was a man that was governed by the word of God, not by emotion. Just put yourself in his position for a moment. He might have said, you know, my father missed the path at the end. And he, but he was a good king. He was a godly king. He did a lot for the people of God. And the way those two servants slew him in his own bed, that is despicable. And there is going to be a price to be paid. Verse 3, he slew the servants that had killed the king his father. Now, unlike Jehu just said, well, let's just clean up this mess once and for all. Let's exterminate this family, get rid of this, this uh, corrupt seed. No, he doesn't do that. He slays not the children. And it shows to me a remarkable principle that the Word of God restrained his actions. He dealt with what needed to be dealt with, but he was not a man looking simply for vengeance. Not a man seeking to write things according to man's estimate but he was controlled by the Word of God. And how many times we've come into situations and perhaps we can apply it right here to ourselves where we there's a matter that needed to be dealt with and we've dealt with it, but then we haven't held back. There's been a restraint that should have been in order and it wasn't. But, but Amaziah, he restrained himself. He killed those that killed his father, but he didn't touch their children. We'll drop down now to verse 2014. Now it came to pass after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of Edomites that he brought the gods of the children of Seir, that's Mount Seir in Edom, and set them up to be his gods and bowed down himself before them and burned incense unto them. Wherefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah and he sent unto him, here we go again, a prophet which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? And it came to pass as he talked with them that the king said unto him, Art thou made of the king's counsel? Forbear, why shouldst thou be smitten? Then the prophet of Baron said, I know that God hath determined to destroy thee because thou hast done this and hast not hearkened unto my counsel. So, 
Amaziah, again, the Lord's with him and he prospers and he defeats the Edomites. And they think of that word in Galatians where Paul says, if I build again the things that I destroyed, I'm become a transgressor. He had just finished a victory over the Edomites. And this is, but I'm going to worship their gods. They're gods that could not deliver him, them, from his hand. With the, the God of Israel. And yet, he takes up with their gods. You say, it doesn't make sense at any level. You know, in Numbers 31, I just read this recently. When the people of God slew the Midianites, there, I'm, no need to turn to it. I just want to read a, read a verse. I find it very remarkable. We know when the things, uh, when the children of Israel defeated, uh, when God wrought victory for them at Jericho, they weren't to take anything, and Achan did, and brought a curse upon his whole family. But in uh, the victory over the Midianites, the Lord commanded Moses, only the gold and the silver and the brass, the iron, the tin and the lead, everything that may abide the fire, ye shall make it go through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall be purified with the water of separation, and all that abideth not the fire, ye shall make go through the water. I thought of that expression, that which will abide the fire. There's things that we may have, even an unbeliever may have, that in his possessions that they might be able to go through the fire. And now he can turn and take those things and use them for the glory of the Lord. But can they stand the fire? And can you cling them with water? If not, they have to go. In the language of that figure, the gods of the Edomites were not able to stand the fire. They were something that could not be purified by water. should have never, never embraced them. And the prophet warns him, but Amaziah now, he's too victorious. He's too successful to listen to some unnamed prophet that speaks to him with the word of the Lord. And there's a certain testiness with Amaziah. And he, uh, he goes to look at the king of Israel in the face. And he's duly humbled in defeat because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Well, our time is winding down. So we've got four there. Uzziah is the fifth king. We find a mighty military conquest and ability. But we find that Uzziah, he was a king that thought he'd become a priest. And 80 men that wore the linen ephod, chapter 26 and verse 17 and 18, they said, don't do it, Isaiah. You're on a wrong course. But he would not listen. And leprosy broke out on his forehead. And he ended his days as a leper. Hezekiah in chapter 29, what we find with Hezekiah among many things is he got rid of the rubbish in the house of God and uh, the Passover was recovered at that time. Wonderful, wonderful day of victory. But you know, the king with Hezekiah, the Lord said, set your house in order and you're going to die. And Hezekiah bled, uh, pled and begged and cajoled the Lord, give me more time. And they gave him 15 more years. But let's just turn to that in the end of chapter 32. Verse 24, In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death and prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. 
But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Thereupon there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And then we see in verses 27, 28, 29, 30, the wonderful work of his hands. But it says in verse 31, you have it developed in, in Kings and Isaiah, what happened. But verse 31 alludes to it. Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. He had come off being mar- marvelously raised up the lo- of the Lord. There had been a day when he cried to the Lord and the Lord defeated Sennacherib and the hordes that were coming against Israel. We find Hezekiah extending the Passover that would reach out and invite those even from Asher to come to Jerusalem. But now, he's raised up and these ambassadors come in and he shows them everything that's in his house. And the reason there was a eunuch in Babylon by the name of Daniel, it was the the result and the consequences of Hezekiah's lack of discernment in opening his home up to the Babylonians. Why did God allow it, you say? Here is a man that he's proud, but he humbled himself. He owned his pride was at work. But it says in verse 31, God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. Oh, that's so sobering. He was a good king. He was a godly king. He was right on so many things. But there was something in his heart that still wasn't judged. And it becomes manifest. The last one is Josiah. Chapter 34. We find that there's three stages of Josiah's ministry. When he's eight, when he's twenty, when he's eight, when he's sixteen, and when he's twenty-six. He begins to do what's right. He doesn't go to the right hand or the left hand. And how many of us have gone to one side of the road to the other, back and forth? The Lord would look, desire that our eyes look right on and our straight lid, eyelids straight before us. Well, Josiah, in eight years, he did what was right. He didn't turn to the right hand or to the left. When he's sixteen, he gets rid of the the idols and all in the kingdom. And when he's 26, he begins to, verse 8, he begins to bring in order to the house of God. And they find the law of God. And the Word of God begins to have prominence in Israel. And Josiah is so, so bright. And things are so much in a state of recovery, at least outwardly. I know from Jeremiah, the state of the people was still poor. But it was seemed to be a very happy day. Well, let's go to the end of chapter 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent ambassadors to him, saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I make war, or I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself, that he might fight with him, and hearken not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God. Here's the king of Egypt that has words from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, 
Have me away, for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of the chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died and was buried in one of the sepulchers of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah, think of that, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah lamented for Josiah and all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah and their lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. Josiah is such a, a fine king. Such a fine king. I think he was, I thought he was 39 when he died. He started so well. But what happened to him? Why did he go astray? The Proverbs tells us he that takes, he that meddles with strife that doesn't belong to him is like a man that takes a dog by the ears. He intervened into a matter that he had no business getting his nose into. God again spoke to Josiah, just like he spoke to all the other kings.